Are you ready to hear the least Christmassy Christmas message you have probably ever heard in your lives? Because I am ready to give it. I think that we have done a strange thing to Christmas, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But before I begin, I want you to know that there are going to be interactive portions of this sermon. There are going to be times where you're going to yell things like, forever. Do you guys think you can yell forever? Okay, excellent. And I may, like, give a look like this, and, like, the mic may, like, do that. And at that point, feel free to yell if you feel it's appropriate, because I enjoy that kind of thing. We do it at Vine all the time, so just, you know, go, go with it, if you will. We're going to talk about a very covenantal Christmas today. I had my mind blown about a year ago. I was sitting in class, and my professor laid out for me the covenants of Israel on one sheet of paper. It was very simple. It showed how one came after the other, and they kind of were interwoven. And I looked at it, and I was just shocked that I'd been a Christian for 30 years, and I've never seen this laid out the way it was. And I was like, wow, this changes the way I think about everything, including Christmas including Christmas. So today we're going to look at Christmas in light of the covenants. And our key question this morning is going to be, what child is this? If you could understand in the first century with the eyes that we have now, looking back through all the revelation we have post-cross, with all of our understanding, if you could have known what was going on in that manger, how would you have answered that question? What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? What child is this? We're going to revisit this slide at the very end of the sermon. At that point, I'm going to recap some of the verses that we read along the way, and I'm not going to give references, but I'm also going to juxtapose New Testament verses right on top of them. If you'd like the references, I do have them. They're right here. I'm not, not making it up. I printed it out so you can double-check me and also so I can read them. But keep this question in your mind. What child is this? We're going to look at Christmas today in a new way. Now, Christmas is at the beginning of Matthew, which is at the beginning of the Gospels, which is at the beginning of the New Testament. We begin our common era dating system with Christmas, Right? So we think of Christmas as a? Oh, it's good. That was a test. That was with the mic lean and things. You guys did great. We think of Christmas as a beginning, but I want to tell a story today that's the story behind the Christmas story. I want to tell a story today that really looks at Christmas as more of a conclusion and not a beginning. And you might think, Anthony, you just got to Christmas as an afterthought. You just tacked it on at the very end. We spent, you know, 56 minutes talking about something other than Christmas. That was the joke, I hope. And now you're just throwing it in at the end, and that's the point. We're going to look at Christmas, we're going to look forward to it, and we're going to treat it as a conclusion. But to do that, we need to dig into the covenantal history of Israel. You guys ready to go? Here we go. God gave four in the Old Testament explicitly. Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. These covenants and promises were absolutely foundational to how the Israelites viewed themselves their nation, and their God. It was through the lens of these covenants that they understood their existence. It was the bedrock for them. So we're going to look at them from the first all the way to the fourth. Here we go. I'm going to slow down a bit because I have very little incentive to finish on time because this is second service. That's not true. I understand the children's ministry. I'm just joking. I'm, I'm sorry. It's a sens- it is a sensitive joke. I'll, I'll can it. First one, here we go. Noah. 
So the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living thing, every living thing as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. The first thing I want to say is we will revisit that last part of this verse at the end of this message. Summer and winter, cold and heat, seed time and harvest, they will not cease. So we're tempted to skip by this and say it's a nice promise, you know, that's great for them back then, but let's feel it as it was originally given. You were the only survivor of a catastrophic flood that has killed everything, brought by the judgment of God, and you just got off the boat. You need to hear this, all right? You need to know that God is saying, I promise not to wipe you out. I promise I'm not going to just wipe everything out again tomorrow. But more than that, there's a shift in this covenant. And it goes from not only am I not going to wipe you out, but I'm going to sustain things. There's not just a promise not to destroy. There's a promise to hold things together. Don't freak out. The world's going to keep spinning, okay? Famines might come and go. Droughts might come and go. But seed time and harvest, it's all going to continue. I am holding it together. I promise. Everybody tracking so far? Third thing we need to know about this covenant. That's not what I meant to have up there. That's crazy. Look, there we go. It's irrevocable and non-contingent. Who decided to keep the world spinning and sustain it? God. And how much did that have to do with Noah? Nothing. God just decided to do it. And is there a, a time limit on this? He's like, I promise until 1,500 years from now, and then it's all up in the air again. No. It's irrevocable, and it's non-contingent. Next prophet, next covenant. Abraham comes on the scene, and God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now I use this one because this is the first time God makes this promise to Abraham but it is affirmed formally in chapter 15, and you can read about it, and this is super dramatic, because God tells Abraham to set up for a covenant that they would have made in the ancient world, and he says, get a bunch of animals and cut them in half. Gross. And then separate them out. Why would he do that? Because in the ancient world, the way they made some covenants was to hold hands and walk through the animals, reciting the terms of the agreement, as if to say, if one of us breaks this covenant, let it be to me as it is to these animals. It's just showing how severe and how binding and how serious the covenant was. Well, in Genesis 15, we see Abraham faithfully obeying God. He gets everything ready, and then God makes him go to sleep. And when he wakes up, he has a vision of God doing what do you think? Walking through the animals by himself, reciting the terms of the covenant. Very dramatic. But I focus on Genesis 12 because this is the first time the promise is given. I will make you a great nation. But there's something else. A little bit about land. Same chapter. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to your offspring, I will give this land. God reiterates this a lot. He reiterates it in the very next chapter. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. He keeps telling Abraham this. Not only the great nation thing, but all this territory. 
I'm going to give to you. He reiterates it to Abraham, Abraham's son, and Abraham's grandson. He doesn't want them to forget this promise. And when Moses is finally about to lead the great nation that God does in fact make out of Abraham into the land that God promised to give them, God himself in Exodus 33 says, I remember, and I want you to remember, that you're getting this land because I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob this land. This covenant was a big, big deal. Huge deal. You will become a great nation. You will have all of this land. And these promises are, again, irrevocable and non-contingent. Who decided to do this for a random guy named Abraham? God. Who said, I'm going to do it? God said he's going to do it. He decided to do it. He's making it happen. How much does it depend on Abraham? Nothing. There's nothing in there that says, uh, 10-step program, you do that, and then I'll do this. This one is not contingent on Abraham, and it's irrevocable. But the next one that's coming along is different. God does make a great nation out of Abraham. And when he's about to lead those people into the land he promised them, he shows up on Mount Sinai, dramatic show, right? The mountain is shaking, there's fire, there's lightning, the people are scared to death, and rightly so, who wouldn't be? Moses is probably scared to death too, and he knows God pretty well at this point. And God gives them a covenant that is essentially the whole law. There are verses in the Bible that say, God spoke all these words. Moses wrote down all these words. It's more than the Ten Commandments. This gets into the nitty-gritty, guys. And this covenant has a funny, a funny little word in it that changes it from the others. Tell me if you can spot what's different about this one. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. What do you think is a little weird about that one? The big, fat, stinking if. It's right there. I mean, it must have been bold and underlined even when they heard it. If? What about, okay, you promised not to destroy the earth, and, and then you promised to hold it all together and sustain it, and that was irrevocable and non-contingent. And then you said we're going to be a great nation, and you're going to give us this land irrevocably without any contingencies, and now we've got a big frickin' if and a contingency. In fact, God goes through great pains to let them know that this is contingent. Look at these verses I smashed together from Deuteronomy 28. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all of the commandments and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. There is not only a contingency, there are ramifications for not following through on your end of the deal. God says to Israel, I'm going to discipline you if you mess up. And at the end of the line, if you keep doing it, I will kick you out of the land. I will turn on you. Time out. Do you feel the tension? Because this covenant, unlike the others, is highly dependent on obedience. And it seems to regulate the very promises that were not contingent and irrevocable. And if you're scratching your head, thinking, how is this going to work out? Are you, is, is this like you're going back on your word, God? What's going on? Hold that tension in mind, because that's, that's what we're going for. 
This one can be messed up. This one can be messed up. This slide just exists so that everyone knows that I know that this is still a Christmas message. That's it. That's really the only reason. I could have taken that outside this morning, don't you think? Man, I'm telling you what. The next covenant we talk about is going to be the fun one. The next one is going to be the Davidic covenant. And this is the one, man, the prophets grab onto this one really quick. After this covenant is given, we start to hear talk about the righteous branch, right? The Messiah, the Emmanuel. And this, prop, this coming covenant, really we talk a lot about it at Christmas, more than the other three. And for good reason. It's exciting, it's grand, and this is the interactive portion of the sermon. Are you guys ready to yell loudly? All right, thank you. You saved us, Julie Milo. Appreciate that. Yeah, do it. When you see a bold and underlined forever, guess what I want you guys to do? Yell forever. Do it. We're making a point here. David says, you know, I've got this great palace. I'm living in a nice house. God's living in a tent. This isn't right. I really love God. His house should be at least as nice as mine. I'm going to make him a temple. And he says it to his right-hand guy, the prophet Nathan, and Nathan's job is to keep him in the will of the Lord, you know, and let him know when he steps out of line. And Nathan says, great job, David. Go ahead and do it. But that night, Nathan's CEO, God, comes down and says, we should have had a meeting first, you know. Go ahead and go back and tell him I want his kid to build the temple. He's not going to do that. But, but I have a message for David that I'd like you to give him. Well-intentioned as he was, he doesn't get to build the temple. But the Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself, who's about to do this? The Lord himself will establish a house for you. And house here is a play on words. God means a royal lineage. You wanted to build a house for me? That's sweet. It's not going to be you, but I'll make a house for you. House means a royal house. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me. Your throne will be established lots of forevers. God hears this from the, the prophet Nathan, and he's not upset at all that he doesn't get to build the temple. He's shocked by this runs right to the Lord's presence at the tabernacle, bows down and starts worshiping. This is David's response, okay? Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed well done. Excellent. So it's going to last for about 150 years, right? No, clearly God over and over and over and over and over again is trying to say explicitly, you will have a king on the throne from your lineage eternally, forever, 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 forever. This cannot be misunderstood. In fact, it's so plain that pretty soon the prophets realized this can't be a normal kingdom. This can't be a normal succession. And they didn't have quite the lingo for it. 
I mean, they couldn't just say, well, I mean, God's going to come down in the body of human being, fully man and fully God and blah, blah, blah. They didn't know that. But they're trying to wrestle with what could this mean? Who is this mysterious offspring that's going to rule forever? Also, interestingly, in this same passage, God again reaffirms his plan to give Israel their own territory. This is curious, because not only does he again promise them the land, not only does he say, David, you're going to have a king from your lineage extending forward forever, but this covenant is again irrevocable and not contingent one smidgen on David. In fact, we know David falls on his face pretty good, doesn't he? A couple times. Actually, at least three, if you're counting. So it doesn't have anything to do with David. Again, the promise of the land. Now the promise extending forward forever of a king. That's great news. If you're an Israelite, look at what your God has done. Not only has he promised not to destroy the world, but he's promised to sustain it. He's the God that says, all right, not only am I not going to judge you and wipe everything out, I'm wrapping my arms around this thing. It's going to continue. Your God is the one who said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and it came to pass. Your God was the God that said, I'm going to give you the land, and you got it. Now your God is saying, there's going to be something that's never happened before in human history. This line of kings won't stop. That's never been done. No country could point to an unbroken line of kings going forward since the beginning of time. Nobody. And God is promising that's going to happen for you. Is that not amazing? That's amazing. Sadly, the reign of David came early in the history of Israel, and it was the high point of the kingdom of Israel. Yes, we could say that his son Solomon was wealthier, but Solomon also tanked the whole thing by the end. So what we see happen is that all these promises culminating in David and this covenant are quickly undermined by the if of the Mosaic covenant. These people start worshiping idols. They drag idols right into the temple of God. They start assimilating with the cultures around them. They start doing really nasty things. God at one point says, you're actually worse than the people who were here before. I'm trying to improve things. Remember the be a blessing to all nations part? You're worse than the other nations. And God uses the language of a spouse that is repeatedly cheated on with Israel. He sends prophet after prophet after prophet saying, stop it. You're breaking my heart. It's like you're unfaithful and you're parading around town and you're proud of it and I can't get you back. Why aren't you loving me? And he would discipline them and they wouldn't come back. Discipline them and they wouldn't come back. Well, you know what? What was the curse that was going to come if the long line of breaking the covenant continued? You lose the land. You lose it. The thing that you were promised irrevocably, gone. And God is going to turn on you and not bless you and instead curse you. This happens. You can read about it in 2 Kings 17. In 722 B.C., Israel had a civil war right after Solomon. They split. It was a train wreck into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The north was never great. In fact, it got evil quick and stayed evil. By 722 B.C., God had had enough. And Assyria comes in and sweeps them away. Here's the biblical account. They, meaning the northern kingdom, 
rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. There is no redemptive passage in the Bible about this northern kingdom. There was nowhere that you can point to that said, and then they remembered God and came back and it ended up good. Southern kingdom, yes. These people are done. Poof, gone. You're going to be a great nation? Northern kingdom is now gone, wiped off the face of the earth. The southern kingdom, where the line of David is ruling, has been hobbling along for generations. But by 586, they're just as bad or worse as the northern kingdom ever was. Babylon comes in, and the unthinkable, the most amazingly terrible thing happens for Israel. Awesome in the sense of awe-inspiring and absolutely horrific. The city of Jerusalem itself is taken over. All the important buildings are burned. And the temple that the law and the covenant of Moses basically orbited around, the center of their society, is plundered and burned. This represented the presence of God to them. The presence of God rested in the temple. What do you think they interpreted it as when God let his temple be completely destroyed? His presence is gone. This line of David that you're supposed to have, the king's sons are killed before his very eyes and then he's blinded and taken into captivity. And the Israelites are exiled. All their independence is gone. Your world has just been destroyed. They're supposed to have an irrevocable, non-contingent promise that a king from the line of David would last forever. They have zero king. Forget a Davidic king. No king. They're slaves. They're supposed to have this non-contingent, irrevocable promise that they're going to have the land. Not only have they lost control of the land, they've been deported. They're not even in the land. They're supposed to be a great nation. They're anything but great. Half of them were wiped out. The numbers of the southern kingdom dwindling all the time. And even if they wanted to obey, the temple is gone. How could they? Everything is gone. Now, if you think to yourself, logically, let's put ourselves in the shoes of one of these people, and let's say you're a Babylonian, and you come up and you say, explain to me the faithfulness of your God. And you say, well, we're supposed to have an eternal king. Now we have no king. He promised us a king. We've got nothing. We're supposed to have land. We've got no land. We're supposed to be a great nation. We're not a great nation. You might be tempted to wonder when it was going to rain. Is he even still holding this thing together? Was that all just a lie? Did our ancestors make it up? Maybe our gods are no more real than the gods of Babylon. Maybe the way everybody else thinks about this war and conquest thing is right. Maybe they beat us because their gods are the real gods. Maybe we should cash it all in. And some did. Maybe we can still be Jewish, but we might as well assimilate with their culture and just be basically the same. We've lost everything. We can't trust God. And some of them did. Maybe, maybe we're just beyond saving. Maybe that if was so big, so bold, and so underlined that we blew our chance. For hundreds of years, we spit in God's face. We deserve where we're at. Nothing's turning out like we thought it would. Not, our history wasn't supposed to go this way. These weren't the promises. And yet, there's a deep-seated belief that it's my fault. 
I can't deny it. I was warned. Another reminder, still December. Thought it'd break the mood a little bit. I want that fireplace. That is a beautiful slide. At this time in history, when you have lost everything, the prophets changed their tune. The same prophets that had been saying doom and gloom and judgment and turn or be judged, now all of a sudden are getting new messages from the Holy Spirit. Okay? Everything is gone. Everything you hoped for. And Jeremiah, the prophet who sees Jerusalem destroyed, you can read in Lamentations about the horrible things that happened, the Holy Spirit says, I want you to tell my people something new. Something new they've never heard before. That the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. This is another verse we're going to revisit. It's super key. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now that sounds beautiful to us. I mean, we want amen right away and, and revel in that. But if you've just seen the brutality and the atrocities that you've just seen, if your hopes and dreams and your families have all been destroyed before your eyes, and the same prophet that was saying it was going to happen now tells you this, that's like salt in the wound. And Jeremiah's prophecies were not well received. Also a slave in a different place, separate from Jeremiah, was Ezekiel. And Ezekiel also was getting the same message from the Holy Spirit. Something new is coming. And this prophet of doom and gloom and judgment starts saying things like this. God is saying, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from your heart of, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you this is the old testament I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws then you will live in the land there it is again that I gave your ancestors you will be my people and I will be your god a new thing is on the horizon a new thing. I wish I could say that when you turn the page from Malachi to Matthew, that a very simple, quiet 400 years, who's heard the term 400 years of silence before? Man, that just gives the impression that not much happened, right? The world was thrown in a blender between the pages of Malachi and Matthew. There's just no other way to say it. So not only now are you a Jew trying to cope with the fact that you've been taken over and none of the promises seem to come to fruition, not only are you trying to wrap your mind around this new thing that the prophets say are coming, but you have to hold that tension for one, two, three, four, five, almost 600 years of some of the most turbulent history that region has ever seen. They're taken over by Babylon, but soon Babylon is taken over by Persia. 
Persia is at constant war with the Greek city-states, who are at constant war with each other. Eventually, the Greek city-states are taken over by a dude named Philip, who has a son named Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great decides he wants to beat up on Persia. Then he dies. His four generals take over. Guess what they do? Fight a lot amongst themselves. Eventually, one of his generals, Ptolemy, gets charge of Judah. But his other general, the Seleucids, they don't like that. So the Ptolemies and the Seleucids fight each other. 200 BC, the Seleucids take control of Judea. But guess what? They have internal fighting, and so do the Jews. And other empires are, arrive, are arriving on the scene. In 167, they defile the temple that has just been rebuilt. Again. In 164, the Jews revolt. The Jews fight with each other. The Jews fight with the Seleucids. The Seleucids fight with everybody. It's, it's sad, it's crazy, it's confusing. They get a brief period of, in quotation marks, independence. Why do they have independence? Because there's like five empires on the scene that are all fighting with each other and fighting with themselves. And they have bigger fish to fry than this little tiny people group called Israel. So as long as they're busy with other things, Israel can claim autonomy. But eventually Rome comes in. And in 63 B.C., the whole region is under the fist of Rome. That's not the simple ending either. Rome has civil war. Who's heard of Pompey and Octavian and Mark Antony and Julius Caesar and Cleopatra? All these players are on the scene. All of them are vying for control. It is a blender. And eventually one wins. And he realizes that he is the most powerful general that's ever existed. He could take the whole enchilada if he wanted to. And he did want to. And he said, don't call me Octavian anymore. Call me Augustus. And I'm going to be the emperor around here. And the Senate can take a back seat. And the Roman Empire was finally born. And he decided, I should probably take a census of everybody that I've just conquered so I can know how to better tax and exploit them. <laughs> Another low point in Jewish history is coming. New census from a new dictator. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time for the baby to be born came. In light of all of that history, we are now back to our original question. What child is this? But moving up to Christmas, I think we're in a better position to fully understand exactly what was lying in that manger. I'm going to read this so I don't mess it up, so excuse me. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, and in him all things hold together. What child is that? I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. 
Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, saying all nations will be blessed through you. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What child is this? For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What child is this? Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What child is this? The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. What child is this? The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What child is this? This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I hope this message has seemed more like more than just a lesson in ancient history. We can learn a lot from the tumultuous history of Israel. Sometimes it's terrible, but it's a wonderful lesson. And if you feel like, I just want to make this personal to leave, give you guys something to take home, because it's not a lecture, it is a sermon. But if you feel like your dreams are far away, if you feel like your best efforts have failed to pay off, if you have failed, or if you think of yourself as a failure, if you have chosen rebellion and sin for so long, you wonder if you're beyond saving. If when you think about yourself, you think that God must be done with you, if you think your life is irreparably off the rails, if nothing has gone as planned, if you are inclined to question the faithfulness of God or is willing to love you, then I would like to say something to you today, and I want you to hear it maybe for the first time with all of the weight and the impact of history behind it, the way it's meant to be heard. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.